Hey, everybody. Good morning to all of you. If you're here, that means you survived the polar vortex this week, so I'm glad to see that none of you froze to death. Um, it was kind of fun and interesting to hear about everyone's stories this week. From uh, It was a good week to be a teacher, I'm finding out, um, where a lot of people were at work uh, this week, but um, it was like an extra uh, Christmas vacation for all of you teachers, so I uh, hope you enjoyed it. Um, we are um, continuing on in a sermon series through the book of Ephesians. We started it last week, and um, kind of the thought process behind it is the book of Ephesians really dives into what the church is, what God's plan for the church is. And since this is a, a church plant like with the goal of spreading uh, the church's mission, God's mission for his people outward and, and into, into ever-expanding uh, 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 places, like we thought it was a really good place to be to kind of start out and as we really wrestle with what is our call as a church, as Red City. So if you're visiting with us today, and I know there are a lot of visitors here, I want to just say thank you so much for coming coming out and seeing this. I know a lot of you have supported us in different ways, whether it's uh, financially or through prayer or just encouragement. And so thank you for coming out. Um, I hope that you uh, are, leave feeling blessed by, by us um, and the people here at Rest City today. So like I said, uh, we're going to be diving further into the book of Ephesians. We started out last week, and just a quick uh, recap for those of you who weren't here. Um, we talked a, a lot about uh, the way in which what God is doing in the church is kind of uh, his plan for the whole world through a group of people that he is setting apart uh, for himself. And we talked about how we're getting in touch with that uh, as uh, God's people, like we're kind of getting in touch with our, our, our family history. And so we were trying to talk about what it looks like to do that and try to set the stage for what the book of Ephesians is going to do as it dives into what all of that actually looks like. Um, and so we kind of are going to break the book up into kind of five key themes or five different ways to understand. And we're in the first chapter, which uh, will be uh, three sermons long. We're in the second one, and we're kind of talking about how this is uh, grace for God's plan that's going to kick everything off. And then in, in part uh, two... Um, we're going to talk about the new life that is offered for the people uh, that are part of God's church in Christ. And then we're going to dive into this idea of what is the new society. John Stott is a scholar, and that's um, in his kind of the key quote from his commentary. He talks about how uh, the book of Ephesians is about this new society, this new group of people that God has set apart for himself with a goal of going out and proclaiming his glory to the world. We'll talk more about uh, that idea today. But um, And then in, in the, the fourth part, uh, we talk about what the distinctive life of the church is supposed to look like. What are these, this new society, how are they supposed to live in a way that uh, reflects God's glory in the world? And then finally, we talk about the new relationships, um, how we are to relate to uh, uh, different people around us as part of being uh, in God's church. But um, what we're going to be talking about today, because the passage kind of goes here, is this idea of election. Um, not this kind of election, though, in case that's what you think of when you hear election. A side note, uh, before the 2020 election, I'm ex I've already begun thinking about a sermon series I'd like to do to prepare uh, for that. So if you want to come back for that, that would be, we'd love to have you there for, for that. So, um, But anyway, we're not going to be talking about that kind of election today. We're going to be kind of talking about uh, this, this thing election that shows up at a few different places in the Bible. And so we're going to dig into it a little bit more, So, um, let's, uh, among other things. So let's just jump right into the passage and we'll start talking about it. 
All right, verse uh, 11 of chapter 1 of Ephesians and 12. In him we were also chosen, having been predestined, according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will, in order that we, who were the first to put our hope in Christ, might be for the praise of his glory. So what Paul is saying here in this part of our passage is that we, the church, uh, have been chosen or predestined or set aside by God beforehand um, for a certain reason. Um, chosen before history to be his people, um, which is consistent with the way in which uh, God orders everything according to his will. Now, I know they, I, the topic of election is, can sometimes be a, a contentious one or there are, it can be an uncomfortable one um, for different people who have studied it. And so if, if that's uh, you, I want to say to you, there's like this is how we read this passage. There certainly is no um, expectation that you read it exactly the same way that I do to, in order to be a part of the church. It's one of those things that we're pretty open-handed about. So um, if that's you coming in here, I really hope you're not bristling or something like uh, like that at this way of reading it. And, and I really don't want to dive into all these different ways we could talk about this topic. There's like a philosophical way, like do we actually have free will if God controls everything, or a moral or ethical way uh, to look at it? Is it right or fair of God to choose certain people? Or systematic approaches, which uses big words like reprobation or different things like that. We're not going to dive into any of that stuff today. We just want to talk about um, kind of a really biblical way of understanding this topic. And I think really the, the Bible says two things about this topic, that um, our tensions are maybe paradoxical in how they play out together, but are still a part of how the Bible talks about it. And it's mysterious in what it looks like. And we're just going to hold on to that mystery and say, we don't get what this looks like. But the two tensions are that God is completely sovereign in every way, right? The passage, it says it right here, uh, according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will. So the Bible says that on one hand, but in multiple places, including in this own passage, uh, we're told that our decisions matter, absolutely. And what we decide, how we act, how we choose to respond to God is, is incredibly important. And those two things seem to not be in conflict with one another in the Bible. And there seems to be some mystery in how they play out. And so for us, we're just gonna say, cool, there's some mystery there. And that's all we're going to say about it. Um, so uh, as we dive further and as we try to understand a little bit more what's going on in this passage, we actually have to back up in your Bible um, and kind of talk about the way in which the, the concept of election works out in other places to kind of get an understanding of it. This is what we would call a biblical theology of the concept of election. And to do that, we have to back all the way up to uh, Israel, the formation of Israel, because um, for a long time before Paul comes on the scene and writes this book of Ephesians, and um, uh, the idea of election was something that Israelites would have understood about themselves. We are the chosen people of God. Among all the other nations in the world, God has chosen us. Okay, And so this is a huge part about, uh, of the nation of Israel and their self-understanding of who they are. Um, uh, so in case you're not totally familiar with, with, with what's happened before the formation of Israel, I'll just run through it real quick. So you have uh, creation happens, and God um, creates people to live in his world, to reflect him into it, to worship God, to enjoy him, to partner with him in ruling wisely over creation. Um, and 
we uh, pretty quickly mess it all up and uh, you know reject that uh, calling and reject God himself. And so the world descends into sin and you get the flood and you get the Tower of Babel and you get just a bunch of, it, the, it's really crappy, like for the first few chapters of Genesis once, once you dive into it. And so what happens is when you get to chapter 12, um, uh, God uh, calls this guy named Abraham and says, so I'm going to take you and I'm going to use you to start a whole nation of people. Um, and this group of people is going to be set apart for me. And, um, and so let's dive into that passage. We'll just kind of spend some time uh, thinking about it a little bit. We'll kind of uh, uh, simmer in it for a little bit. So Genesis 12, 1 to 3, go, this is God talking to Abram. His name's Abram at this part. It's not Abraham yet. He says, go from your country, uh, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. And I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you, and I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all the peoples on earth will be blessed through you. So in this place, this is the first time that God shows up to Abraham and tells him, um, you're going to go out and you're going to create this group of people for this purpose. The very, one of the very first things he tells him is, I'm going to bless you so that you can go out and bless other people. And that's kind of the purpose that God has set apart this people for. Um, some scholars would even say that um, you know, the Jewish religion, belief in this one God, um, offers as its basic solution to the problem of evil, belief in election, and the creator's choice of a people as his own to serve his larger purposes. So you get the sense in which the, the reason that God has set this group of people apart is for the, a purpose of going out and seeing the rest of the earth be blessed by them. Okay, So that's the role that election plays um, for God as the Bible plays out. So as we kind of come up upon it in the book of Ephesians, and we see this is the case, even in how um, Paul will talk about the church's role in this passage and in others in the book of Ephesians, the reason that God sets apart this group of people is for the purpose of blessing the rest of his world and to, for working to undo the effects of sin in the world. That's the whole point of what God has done. Um, John Barclay is a, is a Pauline scholar, and he says it this way, those whom God calls are the product, not of a predetermined past, but of a purpose and a promise. So a lot of times when you look at the concept of election, you think about God choosing, we tend to focus up, you know, on the beforehand piece, and Barclay says, like, we should actually be focusing on, like, what is the result, what is the, the reason that God is choosing this? What's his goal or his purpose in choosing and setting aside a group of people? Um, and that purpose, as we you know, read through the book of Ephesians, is to spread uh, God's kingdom. It's to be a part of reconciliation in the world. It's uh, about bringing heaven and earth under the unity of Christ, which is something we talked about last week a little bit. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that God uh, chooses, you know, Paul's not saying that God chooses a group of people um, and then it's kind of out of his hands after that, right? It's like it's still working mysteriously behind the scenes and all of it, but when we talk about what's going on when we read passages like this, we have to have a good understanding of the reason why Paul would even say this to us, to understand, you know, if we're part of this elect group of people, like, what's the point of that? And I think it's really good for us to, to really dig into that. Uh, so let's get back to the passage here. We'll read, kind of focus in on verse 12 a little bit. Um, uh, 
in order that we, right, so this is the, the reason that we've been chosen, in order that we who are the first to put our hope in Christ might be for the praise of his glory. So right here in the passage, Paul says, the reason that God has set apart this people is to uh, be for the praise of his glory, which is kind of a, a weird clunky, maybe in the Greek it, it is less clunky and it, you know, makes more sense. It's kind of a weird phrase, but what Paul is saying is that the reason that God has set apart this people is to be basically his trophy of grace in the world so that people or the rest of the world can see how great God's grace is, how great his glory is. And so kind of the task or the goal or the, the vocation of this people that he set apart is to make God look good, to reflect him well into the rest of the world. And so um, when we think about this idea of God setting us apart, we shouldn't be thinking about us like cloistering ourselves off into like the club of the blessed, right? And celebrating how great we are. We should be really thinking about it as this thing that is supposed to be flowing outward, right? Like, and, and this goes right to the heart of why we planted a church, right? Is like to, to put this group of people that God has chosen into other places where it's currently not there to bring the praise and of the glory of God to places where it's currently not at. And so that's kind of hardwired into what, we're th- we, what we think we're doing in starting this church. And we see that right here in the book of Ephesians. Let's keep moving on and enter into the rest of the passage here, verses 13 and 14. And you were also included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. When you believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. So uh, what we see here is that God loves his people. He said his everlasting, unstoppable, incomprehensible love upon them to woo them to himself so that he can make them uh, his possession. And so, and the way that he makes that happen is by marking them with the Holy Spirit, it says, right? Uh, so I love books a lot. And if you go into my office, you'll see a lot of books in there. And like the first thing I always do whenever I get a new book, especially when I'm really excited about it, is I write my name in the cover so no one can ever take it from me. <laughs> I'm, a, I'm like, this is my book and I, you know, I'm going to go with the rest of my books and I'm going to read it and I can't wait. And no one else is going to get to do that because it's mine, right? <laughs> I think that like the idea of God putting his seal on us through his Holy Spirit is kind of like that, right? He's saying, this is mine, okay? And and so I'm going to make sure everyone knows. I'm going to mark it with my name, with my Holy Spirit, with something of, of me, right? Like I put my name in that book, right? God is putting something of himself, his Holy Spirit, on his people to mark them off as his possession. That's what Paul is saying here. So there can be no like doubt, right, when his Holy Spirit is in people that these people belong to God. They're a part of what he's doing in the world. So um, Paul says that, but he also talks about, and this is really important, I want us to kind of spend some time to what he means when he talks about in Christ. Um, You kind of come across these two words, union or incorporation, a couple different uh, words that help us understand what Paul means when he uses the phrase in Christ. Because if you read through his letters, you'll see the words in Christ popping up everywhere. Um, So he's saying, we are in the Messiah. We are... um, a way that we can understand this, uh, N.T. writes, a, a New Testament scholar, he says, Paul regarded the people of God and the Messiah of God so bound up together that what was true of one was true of the other. So when God does something or he looks on, on Jesus or when Jesus does something, it's like uh, to be in Christ. 
I want to push, push this analogy a little bit further. So I'm going to do a thought experiment. Um, imagine before she got married that Kate wasn't just from a small town, but she was actually a chronic gambler. Um, she just loved pull tabs. Like she couldn't stop pull tabs. Let's just say that. Okay. And so, you know, she's, she gets in deep with a loan shark because of these pull tabs. Um, now, normally you wouldn't expect like the Prince of England to want to marry someone who like this is them. But like, just pretend that he doesn't care. He's actually really happy. And he's happy to like let her bad name and her bad reputation uh, come in and let his good reputation as you know, prince and soon, you know, someday king overshadow her bad name. Um, and imagine that, like, uh, he's actually like, you know what, this debt that you have and this, like this stuff that you owe to the loan shark, I'm going to take that on myself, actually. I'm going to take on that and I'm going to pay it off for you or I'm like, let this loan shark beat me up instead of beating you up. I'm going to take that on for you, right? That's what you deserve. Actually, not really. That's illegal. But um, like imagine like you're, you know, stay in the analogy like she deserves to get beat up by this loan shark because of her pull tab problem. And so William's like, you know what? I'm going to take on that for myself and I'm going to let the, the loan shark beat me up. And then when he beats me up, like then um, we can have Scotland Yard come and arrest him. So it actually works out really well. You know, it's a little bit like that. Like uh, us being united to Christ, we bring our sin, and we get his righteousness instead of that. And he takes on what we deserve on the cross. He takes it on himself instead. Now, it's not just that, though. Like, it's not just that Kate gets out of, like, this problem that she's in, but she actually gets the inheritance of uh, being uh, this royalty, right? Which is getting to rule a country. Like, that's her inheritance now. Like, something that she would never have had if she wasn't united to Prince William in marriage. Now she gets that. And, and the passage actually talks a little bit about that too. Um, it talks about our inheritance that the Holy Spirit is a deposit or a guarantee for. Now, what's that inheritance actually? To really get what Paul is, is saying here, we've got to go actually back to Psalm 2. Um, and we'll, Julie's going to dive into this a little bit more next week and kind of talk about Jesus being established as king. Um, but uh, we get a little sense for that here in Psalm 2. So Psalm 2 is known as a, as a royal psalm. It was something that was kind of sung for all uh, kings that were made king of Israel, but it always pointed forward to something much greater than it. And, and we kind of see that here in the passage. It reads, I have installed my king, this is God speaking, on Zion, my holy mountain, and I will proclaim the Lord's decree. He said to me, you are my son. Today I become your father. Ask me and I will make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession. So the inheritance that this king, when he's raised up above the rest of the world, is going to get is actually the nations. Like his inheritance is to be king over everything. And we share in that inheritance with Christ when it comes in full, right? When Christ returns, when he's actually reigning visibly over the whole earth. That's the hope we have as Christians as we wait for him to return. We have a, a guarantee or a deposit of that now in the Holy Spirit. That's what Paul is saying to us. So like a, you know, like a IOU or a, a voucher saying, you're going to get this someday. That's what the Holy, how the Holy Spirit functions for us. And because we're in Christ, we're covenanted, we're united to him, just like Kate is united to William, we get that inheritance too, because it's his inheritance. Now it's true for us, okay? That's one way to think about being in Christ. Another way to think about it is to think about Jonah inside the whale's belly. Um, if you are not familiar with the story, it's, it's pretty simple. Jonah is a Jewish prophet. 
maybe a little racist and uh, nationalistic, didn't like other nations very much. And God said, you're going to go to uh, this other nation, Assyria, someone you really hate, and you're going to tell them to repent and, and follow me. And Jonah's like, no, I'm not. And he goes the opposite direction, actually, of Assyria. He gets on a boat and he sails away. And there's this big storm and the sailor's like, what's going on? And Jonah's like, I think this is my fault. I'm just going to jump off the boat um, and you guys should be fine. And so he does and a, a, a fish comes and eats him. And so he's hanging out inside this fish for like three days. And w- so wherever that fish goes, Jonah's going too. He doesn't really have much of a choice, right? Because he's inside the fish, okay? When we're in Christ, it's a little bit like that, Okay. Not actually anatomically like that, but a little bit like, like that, right? So like in Romans 6, Paul talks about how um, when we're in Christ, he's gone into death and come out the other side in life, right? Jesus dies on the cross, comes out the other side in life in his resurrection. And because we are in Christ, because we are united to him, we have also gone through death and have come out the other side in life. So... Um, That is ours as well, because Christ has done it for us. We have gone through the death that we maybe deserved, but we didn't actually have to go through because Christ went through it for us. Wherever Christ goes, we go. Christ goes through death and comes out in life, we do too. And that's kind of, that's what being in Christ means. There's one last way uh, that we can think about this, and I'm going to use the analogy of the Notre Dame Cathedral, which... Um, is featured prominently in uh, the movie Hunchback of Notre Dame, which came out in the mid-90s. I had to rewatch some uh, clips of this earlier this week to remind myself of it. But basically, um, the, the Notre Dame Cathedral in Paris was, uh, and a lot of uh, Christian cathedrals are like this, but it was a place of sanctuary. So like, if you were in trouble or you had some guilt against you, um, you could go to the cathedral and you could claim sanctuary. And that actually happens in the movie um, where Esmeralda is being burned at the stake outside of the cathedral and Quasimodo, the hunchback, he's actually chained up um, and he starts talking to these gargoyles, um, which is kind of weird, but he does. And they tell him, you should go save her. And and so he breaks the chains and actually pulls over, he kind of hulks out and pulls over these pillars um, and then he grabs a rope and he swings, he Spider-Man's down to save her. It basically is a Marvel movie for about a minute. And then he swings back up and he's holding her and he picks her up and he holds over his head and he yells, sanctuary, sanctuary. Like, so Esmeralda was, you know, being burned at the stake. She was, because she was thought of as a criminal, right? Even though she wasn't, if you watch the movie. But um, he yells, sanctuary, so no one can come and get her. So when we're in Christ, just like, you know, Esmeralda being inside that sanctuary, we are protected from any sort of threat against us, any sort of guilt that might be against us. We are, being in Christ means we're safe from that. Just like uh, being inside of a sanctuary and and yelling out sanctuary in Notre Dame. And we see that in like in Romans 8.1. Uh, there's therefore no condemnation now for those who are in Christ Jesus, Paul says. It's kind of the same idea, right? We have sanctuary in Christ. Um, And so when we talk about this idea of being in Christ, it's like a really incredibly rich and deep concept. Um, And Paul kind of just touches on it by bringing it up in Ephesians here. So as we move into a time of application, I want to kind of reflect on all the stuff we've talked about and really just really dig into it a little more. So the first thing I want us to, ref, uh, to do as our application is to really reflect on the grace that has chosen us. It's good for us to ponder the grace 
of election and being in Christ and what that means. Now, John Barclay, that, that I quoted him earlier, he has a, a, a good quote on this. Um, and he's talking about all of Paul's letters, not just Ephesians, but Galatians and Romans as well. Uh, and he says, Paul is particularly interested in what God d- says or does before the birth of a person because this circumvents definitions of worth given by birth or accumulated after. So pause. What he's saying is if God has chosen people to be a part of his people before they are even born, then they can't come in and say, well, of course I was chosen. I'm pretty awesome. You know, they have no, you can't say that if you didn't have a chance to be awesome because God chose you before you were born. So, so John Barclay is saying Paul's really interested in that. He talks about it quite a bit in his letters because it cuts out any reason for us to boast in anything. He continues on, Paul has ruled out numerous qualifying criteria for divine selection. This is actually in Romans 9, but Paul actually goes through and he lists all these different things. And he says, nope, 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 nope. You can't look to any of these things to say, this is why I'm worthy. This is why God believed. So it's really humbling when you think through this. And let's just dig in this a little bit. So um, if, if our birth doesn't really matter at all to God, right, in his, in his choice of uh you, you know, have no reason to think that, that that guilt or that shame from having that family name is it matters to God at all, right? He doesn't care. He doesn't care about that. The, the, the ways in which we think about the world, God doesn't care about that. Talking about, uh, and the same with race, right? If we're talking about birth status, right? Um, if you're born with some, uh, great to have this color skin. Um, God doesn't care about that either. It doesn't matter to him because he's chosen us before our birth, before our race, our natural descent uh, could have even impacted who we were. Talking about um, status, right? All these markers of status that we might put on things are thrown out the window. Before you were born and were able to accumulate money or work really work your butt off in college to get this awesome job that everyone thinks is so awesome, doesn't matter. And then, and finally, just this idea of our practice or our works. Like, it's not about how hard you work. It's not what gives you status. Um, I'm thinking about this, like, so I, in college, I worked for our football team at NDSU, and we had the opportunity to win a national championship. It was really cool. One of the things I remembered over that time is, like, how hard we were always having to work as a football staff. Um, We had this saying, like, if we're not working, our opponents are. And if our opponents are working, then they're going to beat us when we play them. This is something we'd say in the offseason and stuff like that. Like, we should always be working because the competition might be getting a leg up on us if we're not working, right? And so your success comes from how hard you work. That's not the way it plays out for God, right? That, that is not the way that God views it. Instead, again, before we were born, before we were chosen, before uh, we had a chance to work our butts off even, God has chosen us uh, to be his people. And all this should just really humble us, right? When we think about all the stuff that we think we bring to the table, to God or to the people we know or to a church plant, none of that stuff has, has played into the decision that God has made in order to set his grace on us, to set us apart, to love us, right? That does not factor into the equation at all. So that should really humble us. Second point of application, understand what it means that God chooses and not humans, um, so if we read on the book of Ephesians, we find that Paul is writing to a pretty wide audience, which includes, as some of its hearers, uh, slaves and women. If you know anything about the first century, well, or any society, like being a slave is not a good thing. Like it means that people look down on you, like you're viewed as property. 
And in that society, uh, being a woman was not always a walk in the park either. It was, it was a hard uh, life where you were looked down on because of it. And there's actually this famous Jewish prayer um, that was at least around in the first century where uh, Jewish males would pray, God, I thank you I'm not a Gentile, which means I'm, I'm not a non-Jew. Um, I'm not a woman and I'm not a slave. <laughs> like that was the thing that you would thank God for because like they, th- they thought and they thought God also viewed those things as bad, those things as, as somehow less worthy of being a Jewish male. For Paul to write this letter to uh, slaves and women and other people who were seen as undesirable by their society and to tell them, hey, all the stuff that I'm talking about, that you've been chosen, that God has set his love on you, that he, he loves you regardless, he's offering you this inheritance of everything, is kind of a mind-blowing thing if we think about it, right? It's kind of a big deal that God would say to these groups of people that society would look down on that they're the same as the people who are reading the letter who are valued highly by society. And that should, uh, that should inform how we think about people in our society who are valued less, or people in our own midst who maybe come in and just, um, for whatever reason, our society has taught us to look down on them. For them to uh, be God's people, for them to have uh, received his grace, is for us to kind of throw the ways that we would tend to view people on its side, right? Um, and, and, and like we talked about last week, um, the, the big plan that God has revealed to his people um, with all wisdom and understanding, he, God, made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ to be put into effect when the times reached their fulfillment. So the mystery of his will has been revealed to us, and that mystery is to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. When we start to uh, have values that are in line with God's values, we're starting to begin to bring heaven onto earth. Right? We're starting to bring God's kingdom, his values, onto earth now within the midst of the church. And that's the, that's the end goal, right? This is the thing that Christ is going to do when he brings heaven to earth someday, unites the two. But for now, as long as those two are still separate, there's still a spot, if we think of it like a Venn diagram, between earth and then heaven, which is God's space, where those two spots overlap, and that's called the church. And we make that manifest when we start to value people, when we start to think about things from God's perspective instead of our own. That's one of the things that we do when we start to uh, think about valuing people in the way that God does. Our third point of application is we should celebrate being in Christ. Whatever your baggage is, whatever the burden that you're carrying right now that you have brought in here, um, you should should. Rejoice in the fact that like the grace that has been offered to us um, like does away with all that. And we think about it through these lenses of being in Christ, right? If you're bringing in some guilt um, or, or something that you feel like, you know, is just weighing you down, like being in Christ means that he has taken that away from you, right? Having sanctuary in him means that that, that thing you're feeling, that guilt you're feeling, that baggage you're bringing in can't attack you anymore, Right? Or if you're feeling like you're, you're, gonna, you know, you're walking through death right now, um, you can know that Christ has walked through death already and has come outside the other end in life, in Christ. And we, being in him, get those benefits. So whatever your baggage is, celebrate what it means to be in Christ because that means that he's done away with any of that. All right? So that's 
one part of it, but don't lose heart for letting that flow out from us, right? Like I talked about the reason, you know, the point of election is not to look at how great we are and think about how awesome we are that God has chosen us, but it's to be a part of God's purposes to uh, redeem the world. And so we can't lose sight of that. We have to, um, we have to be understanding that like God has set us apart, he's blessed us so that we can go be a blessing to other people. And that's, again, that's, that's the very heart behind planting a church, right? That's the goal is to, set, uh, to be set apart by God, to recognize that, but then to go out from that, to sh- make God look really good in how uh, we serve the community and how we care for people. And that's a huge part of what we're trying to do at Res City in this church plant. So what we're going to do now is we're going to move into a time of worship. And, and while we're doing that, we're going to have the communion table open for you. So... Um, we would invite anyone to come up, even if you're just visiting this, this morning, come up and take communion with us. Um, uh, we just ask that you follow Christ as Lord um, while you do that. Um, so I'm, the worship team's going to come up. I'm going to pray, um, and, uh, and we're going to enter into a time of a couple songs of worship and response to God, right? So that's what we're doing, responding to God in worship, worshiping him for who he is and what he's done for us and how we learned from the passage. So I'll pray to close us here. Father, we thank you that you have set us apart for yourself, that you have doggedly pursued us in love, um, even though we don't bring anything to the table. We, we really don't. We, we, by all objective measures, we would weigh you down, but you don't let that influence your love for us. And uh, I pray that that would be something that people... Uh, leave here and that, that that thought would destroy any bad thoughts that they have about themselves or any pessimisms that they have about things, Lord. I pray that that would be invigorating grace, Lord. We thank you for that. We, we praise you that you have marked us with your Holy Spirit. You've made us your possession and you've made us be in Christ. We made us be in your Son. You've united us uh, to him so that we now have the benefits that we would never have and we would never deserve without that. We love you, we we praise you, and we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.